0: Welcome to Beyond the Block with Brother Jones and Brother Knox centering the marginalized in Mormonism. Derek, how are you doing today, sir? Great. I'm so excited about talking with our guest today. Yes, our guest today is Michelle Fransoni Thorley. She is the curator of the Flora Familiar account on Instagram. If you guys have not seen it, go ahead and check it out. It's F-L-O-R-A-F-A-M-I-L-I-A-R. And uh, definitely encourage y'all to check that out. We'll be sure to drop the handle again in the notes and at the end of the episode. Michelle, thanks for joining us today.
1: Thanks so much, guys. It's so cool to hang out with you.
0: Right, right? Like, we've been... I mean, when we first started, like, we noticed you were one of the first, like accounts that was like ubiquitous among the accounts that we followed and it was so cool to not just see lds art accounts but also lds art accounts by people that are underrepresented in the lds culture and people that talk about stuff like family history and whatnot it was just really refreshing to see somebody doing this work
1: thanks i feel the same way about you guys all the work you're doing i mean it's hard you feel overwhelmed like You know, you can't do everything.
0: I couldn't help but notice uh, that shirt you're wearing. It says, we are the new ancestors. I'm finally talking to a therapist now because I feel like this great sense of not just duty and responsibility, but also just anxiety and pressure knowing that, or and I don't know if you feel like this as well, but there's just this pressure might not be the right word, but you just feel like this urgency to honor the position that you are in as a result of the blood that flows through your veins, you're like in the best position, better position than any of your other ancestors to like do this work. And now here you are as the first person doing this kind of work that you're doing. And uh, I don't know, like, do you, do you got any feelings about that? I'm kind of rambling right now, but I just wanted to give me some validation. That's what I'm seeking.
1: Feelings <laughs> for you, yes. Okay, so yeah, it it is a lot of pressure. Well, okay. I, I totally understand what you're saying. I live with depression and anxiety uh-huh. just 24 seven. So I totally get that. And the more I learn about my family history and some of the mistakes that my ancestors have made, that really helped me because I was like, well, I can't screw it up anymore. <laughs> so that relieved a little pressure. So let be like, you know what? I, I am in the best position. I am in, so ma- I have so much more privilege than they had. Um, you know, being a person of mixed ancestry, I have ancestors of every color. I have African ancestors, I have indigenous Mexican ancestors, and I have European ancestors. And so I, I have a lot of light skin privilege in a lot of ways. I have access to resources that they didn't. I don't have crushing addictions to alcohol. I'm able to deal with my anxiety in healthier ways. So yeah, I, I totally validate your feelings with anxiety because there's so much work to do. And I can't swear on here, can I? Um, there's, so <laughs> much, there's so much work to do and it's heavy work. And sometimes some of that work will not be done within a generation. And that makes me sad, especially with my kids because I know I'm, I'm still passing things on to them that are not healthy, but you know, you're doing the best you can and you're trying and that's important. So
0: (laughs) thank you for sharing that. And also validating my anxiety that that's that's cool so let's shift the conversation back to a little bit of your uh, a little bit of your background here you already alluded to some of it already you have a very colorful colorful background in ancestry which is uh, mad cool i, w- I want to ask you about kind of what brought you to your current ministry like what about your past whether it be your faith or your ancestry
1: I think um, living the life I have, it has built up a well of empathy. You know, I think the gospel principle, opposition in all things, is something that we don't focus on enough within the church, and that the more pain and trauma you experience also gives you a greater ability to feel empathy and love. I came... To the point I am right now, as I look back, I can see that God laid out so much for me and helped me. But in my mind, I really had limits on what I could accomplish. And so how I came to this was all, I mean, it's it started with just being a kid and really being really close to the Spirit. The Spirit almost freaked me out sometimes how much He would kind of prepare me for, you know, the next step, or he would say, do this. And I'm like, that's crazy. And then it would be something that would totally work out, or it would be something that would, I would be in a position to help someone. And I just, when the spirit tells me to jump, I leap. And I think that's how I got to where I am today.
0: Your art is very deliberate in, in terms of how it addresses themes of, uh, you know, faith. Uh, equality, feminism, family history. So, I mean, I know that's kind of a lot of things to address at once, but obviously your past, uh, your experiences have informed, uh, your choice of ministry and also how you address those things. So, you know, start wherever you want, but I just want to get a general sense of how you feel like this has affected the work you do now.
1: Yeah. So, um, it was a rainy day in 1983. <laughs> no. Um, I, so as a kid, I always really loved art. I mean, I didn't know it at the time, but I had a lot of learning disabilities. So I just always grew up thinking I was just really stupid, uh, that I wasn't very smart. Um, but I always loved, loved the arts, and that's always something that really made sense into my brain. And um, But it wasn't something in my family. I was the first woman in my family to go to college, like, it just, art wasn't an option uh, really to make money. So it really wasn't an option. It was just like- fun, So you didn't even study thing.
0: art. Like that wasn't even your educational background.
1: No, I remember I took my one, a first art class in school was in high school and it was, the, it was my senior year. And I just took the intro art class. And at the end of the year, I still have this note that the teacher wrote me um, and it says, I'm so sorry. I didn't know about you. I could have gotten you a scholarship. I, you know, I, we could have done more to help you cause you are, you know, you have talent and, and, um, but it's, it's too late in the year. There's nothing I can do. Um, cause I was already a senior and, and all those opportunities were gone, but she's just like, don't give up doing art. Um, so then I, I I loved art but you know I needed to make money and um and going to college like I never even thought about it really um but I actually did go to college and I I took a painting class and uh you know not to say my mom behind the scenes she was always whatever money we had she was pouring into me and in whatever I was passionate about. So, I mean, she really did support me that way, but as professional training, not, I, t- so I did take that one painting class. Oh, and I took a, a painting class at night at a local craft store with a bunch of old ladies, um, one summer, because <laughs> I wanted to learn how to do it. Um, so I was the youngest person there and everyone was like, what are you doing? Here? <laughs> um, so then I, I served an LDS mission and then on my LDS mission, I, I uh, was in a very bad car accident, and I have a spinal injury. And when I got home from my mission, I was um, pr- in bad shape and a lot of pain. And one of the things that was really hard for me to do was to lift my hands out above, uh, in front of me. So any drawing or painting was gone. I I I used to really love to, like, roll brush my hair and do my makeup, but anything above my head caused a lot of pain in my in my arms and my neck and um so i pretty much just kind of gave up on art at that point um you know when you're you're in your 20s and you have um and you lose your health it's really hard to understand what god is doing (laughs) because you're so young and yet you feel like your life in some ways are is over um so then flash for back to, or forward, I don't know where we are in time. Um, to, to about three years ago, was it three years? 2020 made me lose all concept of time. I I am like, what? What, what year is this? 2020
0: um, is a whole decade. <laughs>
1: I can't, yeah, I can't even. Okay, so I think it was three years ago. Might've been four, who knows? Um, I just... I'm a visual person. I love art. Number one, I could not afford any of the art that I loved. Number two, none of the art represented my life, my life story, my perspective. And I had all these ideas of composition. Like maybe I could reach out to an artist and I could have them paint Jesus this way. And they could use these kind of flowers and this symbolism. And I was like, but then I'd have to pay the artist. I don't have any money. So I was like, well, maybe, maybe I could, maybe I could just draw something, sketch something. So it really started with me just drawing. And then I remembered how much I loved oil paint. Like it, it's, it's my jam, guys. Like <laughs> I love oil paint. And so I was like, well, maybe I got like two tubes of paint and a palette knife and I got um, a canvas at a thrift store and I put my kids to bed and I would go down in our basement and watch YouTube videos and try to just teach myself how to how to paint um just con ideas and concepts of stuff again and it was really painful most of the time I had ice packs on as I did it and then I truly once again when the spirit jumps I I leap and God put an image into my head and he said I want you to paint this and I said God I don't I don't have any paint brushes I only have two colors of paint I have so much pain you need to ask somebody else to do this i can't do it and he's you know he's like i need you to do it i'm going to prepare a way and i don't i don't want to make this like so long so i don't have to go into all the ways that that happened but so i i paint for i paint my authenticity i paint um for people who look like me little girls that look like me so that they can see themselves in art in positive ways and in the art of the church I paint as a way to connect to my family history. A lot of people of color aren't lucky enough to have photos and names and all those things of their ancestors. And so I desperately wanted my ancestresses in my life. And so I painted them so I could see them.
2: I'm just really curious about the concept of art as truth telling, because a lot of people, and this idea goes back to Plato, say, well, art is not actually real or visual art is, you know, it's, it's fake and it's only, it only approximates stuff and it's not actually telling the truth.
1: One thing I, I love about truth telling and history and family history is that we learn that history is so much told from the person's perspective, right? And I think that truth is when you gather many perspectives and see where things overlap and so for a long time especially within the art of the church the, the the truth of feelings emotions or what things feel like or look like to a person come from a very homogenous perspective and so there's a lot of truth that was left out because it's it's only one perspective not to say all white people are a monolith but it just is very similar perspective so for me sharing my perspective on how I see things on how I feel about things is a way of, of me adding to the greater truth. And, you know, actually professor Anthony sweat who's a super cool dude. He talked about how the art of the church in itself is not truth telling. It doesn't fall in line at all with Like for example the stripling warriors our art shows them as these older muscular huge jacked up guys and in reality they're really were young young little boys and we do a disservice to that because i think there's a greater story there when you see them in the actuality of what they were which was young you know young young men so i grew up around mostly white people and most of the time i was the only person of color in school i mean still to this day i am the only person of color a lot of white people know like interact with i am the darkest person that they have ever like seen and talked to which blows my mind but it's true
0: where are you right Um, now
1: i'm in utah i grew up in utah i grew up in utah county um, let so that's a whole nother story there. I'm but, so
0: curious. <laughs> <laughs> I have so many questions, but sorry, oh continue.
1: <laughs> when you are gaslit your entire life, having a voice and no filter and being able to share my perspective has been a huge blessing for me. Like I get a lot of hate, I get a lot of pushback, I get a lot of rejection um but that's one thing my instagram account and my art and even my family history journey and my anti racism journey i for the first time in my life and my ancestors life i'm able to speak the truth people try to gaslight me but i i i live in my authenticity like this is this is who i am this is who my ancestors were this is my life story and it can make people uncomfortable and it make people angry and it can make people not want to associate with me anymore, which I've lost a lot of friends and family. Um, you know, I think I think one of the things we grow up, we think if you tell the truth, people will respect you. And as a little kid, they're like, tell the truth. It's the right thing to do. And so I had this naive idea that if I told the truth, people would respect me. And then reading the scriptures, I'm like, nah, Samuel and Laman, I told the truth. <laughs> they wanted to murder him. Jesus mm-hmm. told the truth. Mm-hmm. They did murder, you know. People don't like truth tellers and i'm like dang it
2: <laughs> and that gets to a point of you're right and a lot of our art has misrepresented the historical details and this is what anthony sweat has done a lot of doing his own works that like oh actually here's the hat and here's the plates and here's how it actually looked rather than this gaslighting. i guess is the word that you've been using way of approaching the art and that reminds me about the first vision i don't know if you've ever done the first vision, but how would you do it uh, or how have you done it and what would be different and what truths would you bring out in that piece of art that you don't actually see elsewhere in our standard church art?
1: I've never done the first vision. I recently saw, I can't remember who it was, I recently saw a newer version of the, the first vision, which is more how I would do it, which was show the opposition. A lot of the times we only show the pretty the light um we don't show what happened right before that and and we're cutting out a huge part of the story right and and the op in that middle line where opposition where light meets dark is where magic is and i and i feel like that's that's the same in art that's the same as storytelling that's the same in family history and history in general right it's that's where the resiliency comes, that's where the The stories of courage and strength and overcoming um, comes from and I think so much within LDS culture especially within Utah with the the culture that I grew up in it's just only focus on the light everything's good it's bright it's cheery and that's it we do not talk about the darkness we don't dwell on the darkness in fact anything negative is divisive and so basically my whole life was divisive and I was wrong and it was it was really hard. So if I were to paint the first vision, I definitely would would have more darks in there and show a duality of what was going on. I respect Joseph Smith. I believe he was a prophet, but I struggle with him. So I haven't really painted a lot of historical church things. You know, and I do, my mom has pioneer ancestry. So that is part of my family history. But I just feel like that perspective has been done to death. And I'm all about like new perspectives for my things that affect me personally, but like the you want to talk about Jesus, like who you know who he was and who he looked like, and I recently been exploring that i and and I've done a lot of research into even like the kind of clothes he would have worn and why he would have worn those clothes and what his skin tone was and his hair texture and and things like that to try to obviously my picture, I don't, I can't paint like a photograph. So it's, it's not meant to be like actuality, but just how I see and feel him.
0: Does that make sense? Totally smell, smell what you're cooking. And, uh, thanks for, thanks for sharing that. Uh, you spoke a lot about the, uh, how I, I suppose the darkness informs a lot of the uh, art that you do and how we as a church, we don't focus very much on the dark. Something that I've noticed a lot, particularly in art from marginalized people, is how much the darkness, for lack of a better word, informs Uh, what the art becomes. Like, if you look at American history, spirituals, the blues, gospel music, all of it is very much informed uh, by the darkness. And I think we miss a lot of beauty in the gospel because we don't necessarily embrace the darkness in fact one of the first things i noticed i don't know if you remember this we're about the same age michelle like but on your mission you remember those videos that we had that we showed investigators of the restoration and how they just kind of skipped over that whole uh darkness part when they and i was like hold up wait a second i mean i don't want to trivialize this or like glamorize it but i'm just like that's that's like where the seasoning is of the story that that that's where so much of the depth and so much of the beauty of the story comes from it's like a marble you know what i'm saying like a lot of the beauty of a marble is in the in the impurity streaks so i'm i just really appreciate you you bringing that out and mentioning that
1: well everything you just said though also applies to family history all of the beauty and is in it's in the marbles and in in the opposition, and I think also within family history in the church, we we cut that out. We just talk about. I mean, a lot of people talk about their pioneer ancestry and and the things that they suffered, but you know, so much of people's immigrant stories are cut out. They don't know where they docked, where they land, what year they came, who was your first immigrant ancestor, how did they get to America. How did they take the land from the indigenous people here? Um, you know how, how did polygamy feel to a lot of those wives? We, we don't we don't talk about a lot of that stuff and I think' we're, we're totally missing out on the the strength of family history. you know within our church, the prophecy of Elijah says that our whole the whole purpose of us coming to the earth is to turn our hearts to the ancestors and for the ancestors to turn the fathers, to turn their hearts to the ki- children and the children turn their hearts to the Father. That's the whole purpose of what we're doing here on earth. And I mm-hmm. think we keep family history in this tight little box with this nice little bow on it. And it does no one good, any good. It does not help to fulfill the prophecy. It does not help to circumvent the curse that is <laughs> tied to the prophecy. Um, mm-hmm. And as we, we, we got we to gotta break out of that. We got to break out of this Eurocentric mold that we keep family history in and this bright sunshine mold and we got to marbleize it. We got to get, get all those streaks in there and, and all the other per- perspectives so that we can see the whole 360 uh, degree view of the truth and not just the one perspective of the truth.
0: I have noticed uh, you make an effort to do that in your art. And I just wanted to know if you wanted to speak a little bit more to how you have chosen to address the complexity of, you know, our history as a church or perhaps our history, you you know, your own family history uh, through your own life and through your art. Because I I have seen you speak on this on your account, and I just wanted to know uh, how you prefer or how you want to go about addressing that complexity.
1: One of the things I talk about is family history is a multifaceted jewel and that when you take a beautiful cut diamond or whatever and you spin it around and it and it sparkles because you, you're seeing all the different facets of it um, as a visual person and an artist that's that's how I see family history it's it's a multifaceted jewel and and you want to spin it around and look at it from all the different angles. And I guess that could be applied to to not only individual family history, but church history, American history. We, we need to look at all the facets and we need all the different um, perspectives. And some of those facets are going to be really sad and hard. And I think for people of color, many of those facets are very sad and hard and and dark. I think a lot of European, the European diaspora does not understand that, you know, you may have an alcoholic or an abuser or something on one line of your family tree, but for people of color, so like the trauma, right? You have trauma on on one portion of your family tree, on one line of your family tree. Many people of color, many black and indigenous people, they have trauma compounded on all sides of their family tree. It's compounded each generation, each time the family was separated and taken um, from each other, the trauma just compounds, compound, compound. And I think when the church reaches out and says, do your family history, that for people of color, they're like, what the hell are you talking about? Like, I can't go down that rabbit hole. That is a freaky, scary rabbit hole, you know, that scary, whole filled mm-hmm. with trauma and, and shame, honestly. And there's no, that's the thing is there's no resources to help people of color. So, so much within the family history industry, they just want to all lives matter that we're all the same. Our histories are the same, the way we approach it's the same, the way that we process the information that we learn is the same. And it's just not, no. it's just not the same.
0: I remember taking a family history class at a BYU and nobody told me, like I mean, I was young at the time. I was like twenty one, twenty two. They're just, and no one told me, like what that experience of trying to find uh, family history on my non European ancestor side was going to be like. Like nobody, to- well, they didn't tell me what it was going to be like on the European ancestor side either. Like no one told me how much questionable stuff I was going to find. That how. You know, my mother's side was basically a product of a lot of rape and my dad's side basically didn't even start keeping records until long after the emancipation of the slaves. Like the closest thing I found to a great uh, a great grandparent was or a great great grandparent was a church record that didn't even think they were important enough to keep their names or to keep their last names in their in their church records. Like they just didn't keep them. So I was like, I'm going to hit a wall on my immediately African side of my family and, you know, on my European side, I'm only going to go back as far as they thought the people who were in that line were important. So like, I can't, I know nothing about, I know very little about my black ancestors and that like really bugs me. And what I do know is, you know, not all that pleasant. And it's, you know, it's both infuriating and, uh, you know, discouraging. I'm just like, and this is like recent, like so recent. I just learned yesterday that my mom and Ruby Bridges are the same age, which is just like, every time I hear like a white person say slavery or like racism was over, it was a long time ago. You're no, you know, you're complaining about something that happened to your ancestors. And I'm just like, what do you mean? My answer, you talking about my mama? Like this is just, this is just a generation removed. And, uh, it's tough, like being in the church that is so Eurocentric, and just having to explain all these complexities to folks that don't want to see them. Yeah, I, I just I know that pain all too well, and I'm glad you you said it so eloquently. So thank you for thank you for sharing that. Sorry, Derek, did you yeah have I wanted follow-ups? to
2: say this is this is different, but family history can also be very painful for queer people because we look at our. I've looked at my family history. And I'm like. There's all these straight people in powers, you know, sets of powers of two, like two, four, eight, sixteen, straight people. Now I don't know that they're all straight, and see, that's the other tragedy is many of them could have been bi or queer in some way, and it was not safe for them to be out. But those stories are lost forever, as far as I know.
1: Yeah, and I think also to maybe this is similar the, to grapple with the fact that there's a good chance a lot of your ancestors would have hated you, hated you uh, as a, as a mixed race person. I I know I've read the journals of a lot of my white pioneer ancestors. They hated it, the indigenous people and, you know, mixed race was considered a sin uh, for a long time in the church. They would have hated me. And I'm, I don't want to, you know, put feelings onto you but I I understand for for LGBTQ people that is really painful and the loss, you know, I think in family history you you there's something so exciting about seeing someone that in a photo that has your same eyes or knowing that you share a same love of music as an ancestor or something and I would imagine for for gay people that Mm -hmm. knowing if they had the same you know sexual desires and attraction and 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 that you got that from them like it you know like it's a uh, maybe runs in the family or something like there would be something so healing and connecting about knowing that and that you don't get to have that and I'm I'm sorry
2: yeah and it's tough like I don't even have to go back even one generation before I find people who reject me it's my own parents right and so that's the other lived experience of queer people is many times we're rejected by our own by our own immediate family not the ancestors just like your own parents and siblings and that can be tough like why do you want to invest time in that when for many queer people our real family is chosen family and not biological family that's where we've had to land and so that's
1: uh with both of your perspectives that you just shared with me, then, then why is the prophecy of Elijah how, with those very real, very valid viewpoints and painful, painfulness of it, how, how do we accomplish the prophecy of Elijah? Because it's very important.
0: I'm really not in a position to answer this question other than like I told you at the beginning, I felt this pressure and this is the closest thing I felt to the spirit of Elijah. And I, and I know it's the spirit of Elijah because I have just felt like it wasn't, it it wasn't just an anxiety and it wasn't even primarily an anxiety. I just think that's the best word I have for it. It's just that I have felt prompted to do certain things that honor the suffering and sacrifices of my ancestors. But like, I don't think I have any consistent protracted experience with that particular gift uh, the way that you seem to have, which is why I defer to you when you like ask that question. I'm just like I know you have more experience with this than I do because you know my spirit my my experience with the spirit of Elijah has come in like short little bursts and uh, whereas I see the content that you've created and I'm just like the spirit of Elijah, family history this is. This is like infused in your work. So I'm just like, I don't got no answers to this. Like, I feel like I'm Sway and you're Kanye right now. Like, I don't got the answers, man. Like, (laughs) I don't have these. Yeah.
2: So to me, the spirit of Elijah is really about no one getting left out. And a lot of people think, oh, you know, maybe I can be perfected without my parents or without my children or like maybe I can be perfected without my queer children or whatever. I'm like, no, like we're all inextricably tied together in some way. And this idea that, for example, right now we're in a situation where I could go to the temple and seal my, all my ancestors to each other, but I can't even get sealed to, to a partner that of my own choice. Right. So what does that do? Like, how am I going to seal myself to all of them if I can't even get sealed? And, and so, yeah, it's this idea that I've used this analogy before. It's like, oh, Derek, you won a free trip to Disneyland, but you have to leave your foot behind. I'm like, nope, I'm not going to Disneyland without my foot. And I wish there would be straight people in the church who say, nope, we're not getting anywhere unless we're going there with our queer siblings. But people just somehow leave leave us out uh, and... Yeah. So that's to me the spirit of Elijah is is to realize that no one can be perfected without everyone else.
1: That I think that definitely is part of it. I think what what I have done to get me to the place where I am today is I broke the little box. I I do not keep family history in a box. I do not keep temple work in a box. I I interact with it in in different ways and I broaden the scope of what it means to turn a heart. Um, and that's what I try to show other people, teach other people on my Instagram account and with my art, is that there's not only one way in this door and the way that we've been shown how to do it is not, is not the only way. You know, I, I think family history is about music. It's about recipes. It's about clothing and hairstyles Jewelry and textiles. It's it's about nature and dancing. I think there's so many doors and ways into turning a heart. You know, the the prophecy of Elijah doesn't necessarily say, you know, everyone has to be sealed and married or whatever. It just says that you have to turn your heart. You have to feel connected to the past. You have to understand the past, and then. Any mistakes or hatred, you know, th- that's one thing I do love about the temple is, you know, we, we get to wash the blood and sins of that generation away for that person. And then we talk about the compounding in negative ways with the generational trauma, but there's also compounding of generational healing. And I think we see that in, in our temple ordinances um, of that healing for just individuals, um, not necessarily as a couple And so I think a lot of white people, white people in the church have a lot of um, shame about racism and, and white supremacy. And I think one of the ways they can deal with it is to help their ancestors wash away the blood and sins of their generation and do what their ancestors could never have done, which is, you know, denounce white supremacy, accept racist and and biased thoughts and go see a therapist and, and move forward and try to um, try to start that generational healing. And I think for people of color, it's hard. I think a lot of white people right now don't realize how much people of color deal with internalized racism, how much shame we carry to even connect to these ancestors because of white supremacy, a lot of us had to pretty much denounce our whole family because we didn't want to be socially, we couldn't be connected to these brown and black people. Uh, we wouldn't have the same uh, opportunities. We wouldn't uh, be able to have the priesthood with, in the church. We wouldn't have um, been able to be safe. Sometimes you're a lot safer if you could denounce that family. And the pain, and I, 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 I'm, I'm drawing parallels with, with uh, LGBTQ Issues and 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 maybe I have no right to, but I just think that pain of not being able to live in your authenticity and the shame that comes from thinking that your authentic self there's something wrong with it. I mean, Brene Brown's talked a lot about the the toxic horribleness that comes with not being able to be your authentic self and um, how that physically destroys your your physical body as well as your emotional and mental state. And I think us embracing who our ancestors were, helping them to heal, helping um, ourselves to heal, preparing a better, more equitable um, society for our descendants and the the children that come after us. um, I think that's all part of family history.
2: Yeah, I think that's a very valid point, point. and with queer people, it's not just the rejection of one's ancestors for respectability, it's rejection of your fellow queer people today, and I see this a lot in the church, where some people will try to become respectable in the eyes of, of church culture. And they will end up distancing themselves. Like, oh, I'm not like those gays that are promiscuous and and getting married and having sex and, and doing all the gay stuff. Like, I'm this virtuous poster gay child. And that actually can be very damaging to that person's soul and to the rest of the community because then that example can be used against the queer people who are just trying to be their authentic selves the way that God designed them.
1: Yeah, I definitely see uh see those parallels I do I do want to to mention something that I've I've come in contact with that um I think a lot of people in the church that feel like they're so super woke on LGBTQ issues can also translate that into being super woke on racial issues and 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 they're two they're two different things and so I I want to acknowledge that yeah I'm I don't even like that word woke but whatever I I, I know a lot about racial issues. I'm an anti-racism educator, but I, I have a lot, a lot of work to do to be more um, literate on, on LGBTQ issues and, and to be more compassionate and, and to gain a, a wider perspective. And so that's why I really appreciate all the vulnerability and the things that you share on this show because I, I'm learning more. But I, I find it's funny within the LDS... Uh, art world in particular, you know, a lot of these white people will have children that are queer. And so then they, they, it opens their perspective, but they're never going to have a black or brown baby magically born into their family right. where they're right. going to yeah. be able to have that perspective. And so they come up to me and they say all these like offensive things because they think that they are super.
0: <laughs> they think they get it.
1: <laughs> yeah. And I'm like this, this, this is not cross we have to you can't just work on one and think you get a pass on the other like we need to work on both and that's where i think your show is brilliant because you guys encourage everybody to think about both perspectives and how there are similarities but that there are a lot of differences and so anyway i just i really appreciate that about you guys
2: Yeah, there's a lot of difficulty about the intersection of that conversation. And I think one of the things that bugs me the most, and you'll hear this from the people that are allegedly woke, is they'll say, oh, look, we can fix this LGBT situation just like we fixed racism in the church. I'm like, we didn't fix racism in the church. Like, that's not, that's, what are you talking about? Like, we've got so much more work to do. Like, you can't just pretend that that's all done and we can learn from it. I mean, oh. Yeah.
1: And I, I don't claim to have answers to anything. I'm not I'm not a great scriptor. And like, I was super nervous to come on with you guys because you guys are, like, hella smart and <laughs> know lots of things that I don't know. I don't know all the answers to stuff. I just... I know about Jesus of Nazareth, and I know about the Holy Ghost, and I know... I know that the second commandment that God gave us is more important than any of the other commandments. And so... I don't know. It's, it's a messy thing and it takes hard work. And I'm sure that I make mistakes just like with, with racism. I think a lot of white people, when they read my account, they, I, well, I know this for a fact that, I mean, I've lost a lot of family because they think I'm divisive and mean. Um, And I, I make mistakes too. It's not about never making mistakes. It's just about calling out how it really is. And then just, trying to do better and I guess that's that's all we can really do right I I don't know
0: no you're right um who was it was it Brene Brown that said something along the lines of you're going to like in this fight in this conversation in this struggle you're going to mess up but like keep going anyway because that's kind of part of the process like it's fine and I know just in my own experiences with people that have messed up particularly with you know, white folks who experience their fragility in my presence—it's just like a. Well, I'm just not going to say anything then, or I'm just not going to talk, and that's that's not helpful to anybody. Like, I, I don't feel like we, especially in the church, give people a lot of permission to make mistakes or to, um, or you know, to mess up. Like, when it but comes. But there's to- a
1: whole reason why we have the church. It's crazy.
0: Yeah, it's the whole reason the institution exists. It's a it's a hospital for sick people is, I think, what Uchtdorf or somebody else like that said. And I'm just like, even even though that analogy isn't perfect, I just love the... Um, you know, I, I just love that it gives people permission to not be perfect. Um, we, we have an issue with perfectionism and toxic positivity in the church to the point where, you know, people like myself get subjected to a great deal of anxiety because, you know, they're not going to do things right all the time. But, you know, especially when it comes to these uh, fights against bigotry, whether it be feminism or, uh, you know, affirming LGBTQ folks or fighting racism, even that's going to be a process. None of us are going to do that perfectly. I don't do that perfectly. I, as a straight black man, I am going to have some blind spots. You know, I just had a friend tell me last night, straight black men are the white people of black people. And I'm just like, well, not totally wrong, you know? Um, So that, that is, that is where we find ourselves. Sorry. This is just a long way of saying, um, yeah, mistakes are part of the process and, you know, ain't none of us are perfect in this fight or in this journey to perfection and salvation that we call the gospel of Jesus Christ.
1: Thank you so much. I, I know I'm jumping around a lot and I think, you know, that's why my account might be hard for people is because, For me, in my mind, and my heart, all these things are interconnected. But for a lot of people, these are on completely different planets, like anti-racism work, family history, church, um, feminism. They're they're all separate. And for me, like how my brain works is like I have like a, a hurricane going on in my brain and there's all these things floating around. And when I try to like talk to people, I'll like grab a thing out of the hurricane and try to set it in the eye on the floor so you can see it and and that I've I've realized that I'm a really bad communicator with people who don't Think like I do because they're like, "What is this one thing you're holding?" And I'm like, "No, but it's it's all connected." And they're like, "You're crazy." So
0: I, d- I don't know that that's the case, Michelle. Like I don't think you're a bad communicator with that stuff. I just think that people are so unconditioned to think in the way that you do that when they actually confront that, there's might be a little bit of anxiety or apprehension on their part because they just don't want to embrace that. Like, I mean, I'm speaking for myself, and uh, but when I like came across your account. I'm not going to say I immediately got it. But after looking at a few posts, I was like, oh, this is who she is. Like, I already had a picture in my mind of what you might look like, what your experiences might have been. And uh, I was like, this makes sense. Like this intersection of race, feminism, family history, faith. Like it was all pretty clear to me. But also I'm conditioned to be able to see where all that stuff you know, comes in community with each other and how there's an intersection there. I feel like you don't have a weakness in explaining that to people. I feel like people have a weakness in being able to receive that conversation because they're not conditioned to. And also just that's scary for a lot of people. Like it causes them to confront a fundamentally wrong thing about themselves that a lot of people just don't want to confront. So... Just by way of validation, I don't think you're doing a bad job of explaining your brand to people or explaining your, you know.
1: I I freak people out and I can feel that. Like that energy, I know that I I scare people. I and and for me as a person, I'm actually a very gentle uh loving person and so it is it is really hard for me to 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 know that I make people uncomfortable, that I, that people, some people are legit afraid of me and they see me as divisive or even evil. Um, <laughs> and it's, uh, it it's, it's painful, especially when it's people that actually quote unquote have known me my whole life. Um, yeah. Um, but, and sometimes I ask God, why are you making me do this? Like, I, I don't. Sometimes I don't want to do it. As as bold as I am, sometimes a lot of times I don't. I I don't want to say I don't want to hurt people and make them afraid of me. Um, but if God asks me to jump, I leap. So mm-hmm. all think all these things are connected for me. They are authentically who I am and how I feel. I don't sensationalize or over dramatize the things I talk about, and actually. I don't think people realize how much I check in with God before I post or write something or paint something. I'm always checking in with him um, and asking for help. So I don't know.
0: Thank you for sharing that. Like, um, As you spoke, I couldn't help but just think of the life of the Savior who, you know, at not even at different times of his life, but like for telling the exact same truths, he endeared himself to his real followers and he alienated a lot of other people. And uh, that's what I heard as you spoke. I feel like all you've done this entire time is just tell your truth in the way that you are uniquely qualified and able to do it. And yet, like the savior, it probably hurt to see people experience that or receive that from you and decide that that's too hard or that's too scary or that's even evil. Like, and that's what I heard when you spoke is just this lament at not being able to gather everybody in by telling your truth.
1: Yeah, I know. I think you, you expressed it perfectly. That is exactly what I would say. And I, I, uh, there's a lot of times I think anti-racism educators, you know, my good friend Jasmine from uh, first name basis podcast. We, we talk a lot and just like, we wish we could stop talking about this. (laughs) Like we we wish that we didn't, have to say these painful things and make people upset. Like we just want to rest and go run through a field of wildflowers. Like (laughs) we don't want to, we don't want to, want to do this a lot of time, but we, that's what I think so many people don't understand. We do it because God has asked us to do it.
0: Right. Right.
1: And, um, and yet we get called, you know, divisive. And and, Mm -hmm. I mean, I, I think, and and especially with family history, like, I've worked really hard within the industry to try to show people how Eurocentric it is, and how exclusive it is, and how we need to be inclusive in family history. And I got so much pushback, um, you know, they called me divisive, they've, they've questioned my, you know, my account looks like someone who's just about to leave the church, I asked to get paid for some services that I did for a church organization and they accused me of being flippant with the Lord's sacred funds.
0: Ah, hell no. They didn't.
1: And know. I and I I think I I've showed you guys my painting I'm working on of Jesus. Like people have accused me of not not following Christ or or being bad or wrong or whatever for talking about racism or for pushing back on stuff. And I think one of the reasons my my most recent painting of Jesus is to show people like, I know him, I love him, I follow him. And you can accuse me of whatever you want. But I hope this painting shows you the proof of how I feel about him and the connection I have to him. And what I do is out of love for him and for what he's asked me to do. Anyway.
0: It's all good. Take your time.
1: But yeah, ultimately they're going to think whatever they want about me. And that's okay too. I I built up my racial stamina, like maybe callous that you said it's getting there. Um, But uh, opposition and all things, I also need to leave myself vulnerable so I can, be able to empathize and touch people in ways that i need to as well so i'm getting there
0: <laughs> that's such an important point by the way and i'm really glad you said it i was uh whose interview was it i think it was ijeoma oluo's interview where she said you think i want to be talking about and writing about race all the time like i want to write i want to write novels you know um it, it's Like people think that we are doing this work that we're doing because we're trying to start trouble or that we're trying to like just play the race card all the time or trying to sow seeds of discord. And that's that's really not it at all. I'm glad you brought up that conversation with Jasmine, because I feel that on such a visceral level, I hate it when people um, see this part of my identity and think that this is all I am or that because this is all I feel to talk about, that this is like the extent of my identity. I'm just like, no, y'all are making us do this. Like we we love to not, I would love to just be my dorky self who just loves watching anime and like playing video games on occasion. Sorry, Derek, no disrespect. I do. I want to do the nonsense.
2: (laughs) Yeah, like... Like who doesn't want to hear me talk about scriptures all
0: day? Or well, the this is, this is our entire friendship, basically. Like this is the whole reason I started the podcast right here. I'm just like, let's just broadcast this, all of this stuff. And and I know that people
2: have these accusations towards you, and that it can be tough. But something that I find comforting is think about how the history will get told in the future. Like almost anyone that does anything that's worthy of of doing gets called divisive in their lifetime and then they're a hero in the next. Like like the tools of, of white supremacy, they're using the same ones against activists today. I, even the same words, like almost literally the same words mm-hmm. as against Dr. King. Like they told him he was divisive and he's going too fast and he's, you know, Asking not being peaceful much. and like it's the same thing. Now we've sort of domesticated his memory now and we've made him out into this like tame person that he never was. So we white people, we'd need to actually do the real history and not create Dr. King in our own image. But like I'm saying, the, the people who are considered heretics in their generation frequently go on to be considered prophets in later generations because they were ahead of their time.
0: Mm. So find strength in that if you, if you can. About to say, how's that make you feel, Michelle? You're, ba- you're basically a prophet now.
1: <laughs> no, ultimately, I, I, I am very self-aware. Um I think being an only child, uh, there was no one else, and a daughter of a single mom, so my mom was always at work, so I was alone most of my life, and so I'm very self-aware, very, very know myself a lot, um, and so when I do things, I, I really do check in with God and I check in with myself, and like ultimately. You know, my my whole life, like, teachers told me I was stupid, people made fun of me because I was Mexican. Um, I've been told all these things about myself that were bad or that were wrong, um, or that I was doing things wrong, or I didn't do things in the right way, but the Spirit was always with me. And I've always known that I am intelligent, and that I have something to offer, and that I know I'm doing the right thing. Um, And I'm grateful for that um, because it's, it's what lifts me up and encourages me to keep going. Even when it's not like my, my injuries have gone away. I still have a lot of pain um, when I paint. Um, But it encourages me to keep going. So thank you so much for sharing that because you said it in a way I've never thought about it before, but I do know that that is true, that that I'm not divisive and that I'm doing God's work. And I think that about you guys too. You're doing God's work. You're making it more inclusive and not exclusive. So Did we, I don't know if we talked enough about art or feminism. or feminism. There's too many things to talk about.
0: I'm thoroughly enjoying everything that you've given us so far. And uh, I feel like we're capturing a rare moment in history where like, eh, like I forget every now and again when we actually have people on the show and interview them, we're interviewing like future leaders of the church here. You know what I'm saying? People whose work is going to be referenced, you know, many years from now, if not, you know, soon from now. And I'm just like, I want people to know how you feel about this work that you're doing as you are doing it. And this is something I miss in the scriptures on occasion. Like, people are writing this stuff in retrospect, all the, like, oftentimes. Even this Joseph Smith history that we're reading right now is part of the Come Follow Me. I'm just like, Joseph is writing this, like, at least a decade after he's experienced this. I want to get a glimpse into the prophetic as it is happening. And uh, I'm really glad that we have the opportunity uh, to do that with you today. So I am going to take this a whole mile if I can.
1: Yeah, but, I'll, but it's one thing, but I wanna know, see, that's one thing I wanna think about with family history. I wanna know what people are experiencing while they're happening. When their ancestors like are on the ship over here, like what are, you know, so much of that story is cut out. And I think reaching back into time and trying to put those pieces together is something that's that's really valuable, at least for for my personality. Um, it's one of the facets that I really enjoy is like, what inspired you to do this and what were you feeling as you did it? And when you face these really hard things, what in you, cause you know that you're here because your ancestors continue to live and they continue to, to go push forward. And it's like, when you face this hard thing, what was it in you that can, that made you keep going?
2: It goes back to this concept of role models and uh, people who are sort of doing something new may not have pioneers that did. Obviously, if there if something is done for the first time, you're not going to have any direct role models. And I find this to be true of myself as a queer theologian in the church. There's no one in this dispensation that I can point to and say, "I want to do what they did."
0: I want to ask you about this piece you wrote. You know, I think it was like a year or two ago. I think it was a I think it made the rounds again after the uh after the uh announcements about the four-year art in the church but you like wrote it maybe a year before that but it was basically addressing the uh the diversity in lds art or i I suppose the lack of it Uh, i was wondering if you wouldn't mind and you know i'm gonna link the thing to the link to the Article in the show notes, but I just for the benefit of our listeners wanted to hear you talk a little bit and speak a little bit to uh, the necessity of diversity and representation in LDS art in particular. You kind of alluded to this at the beginning of the episode, but I'd like to hear you talk a little bit more about it if you if you if you wouldn't mind.
1: Yeah. Oh, I... I love to talk about it. Um yeah, I wrote it a year before that happened, I believe. Exponent magazine uh, saw my art, and they invited me out to New York uh, to speak. And what i I wanted to speak about was uh, diversity in LDS art, um, so much representation, you know, um, growing up, i I never saw myself in the art of the church. I never saw my family history, my story, represented in the art of the church. Um, and that that was very, made me feel excluded, like I, I wasn't supposed to be here. And I think art and representation in general just, it, it can do so much. It can do someone feel included and feel welcome um, just by those visual representations. And I just, I knew we needed more of it, but I knew it needed to come from a place of authenticity because I think, and I don't know if I know how to explain this in the right way, so you might need to help me. So, for people of color, we know how white families work. Like we know their experiences. We we have to observe them um, in order to to survive in in society. We movies are based on them, so. So not that, I mean, everyone's an individual, but for for the most part, people of color really understand the white world. Do you know what I'm talking about?
0: Absolutely, like we are conditioned to understand how white people operate for our safety and our survival. Like I know things about white folks that I don't need to know, like how to take care of their hair, just little stuff like that. And, And this is different of course, but as a queer person,
2: I don't understand why any straight person needs to tell me anything. Like, I grew up with straight parents. Like, I grew up in a straight world. I had to navigate a straight world to survive. Like, until I was 18, the only things I knew were straight. I had never uh, met another LGBTQ person until I was 18. How do you think you have anything to tell me about straight anything, right? Right. Okay, uh, so you get
1: what I'm saying yeah, with yeah. this this perspective. Okay, yes, so I think I think when it comes to art and the place of authenticity, like me, I am the daughter of an immigrant. I am um, a Mexican American. I am the daughter of a single mother. I'm an only child. Like my perspective is is so different, and like most white people can't, they don't know my perspective. I know their perspective, but they don't know mine. And I think with art, a lot of the times, a lot of white artists, when it comes to people of color, they're like, oh, well, we're all pretty much the same. We all have about the same life experiences. So I can do this painting and just instead of painting someone with white skin, I'll just paint it with brown skin and then people will feel included. And then our, our artwork will be diverse and, um, and people, you know, people will see themselves in the art of the church. And it doesn't work that way because they don't realize that there's a there's a different perspective that they don't even know about, or they don't even see. And so when it comes to diversity within LDS art, the art needs to be made by diverse artists. Uh, a lot of times you can go into galleries and you'll see all these brown faces, but 90% of the artists are white. So it's the white perspective of what life is like for people of color. It's the white perspective of how they move and interact with the church, how they feel about Christ, what he looks like to them, how they, you know, um, and it's not from the perspective of people of color. And so then you look at the, the number of artists of color in the church and like art is a privilege, especially fine arts like oil painting. What I do is such a privilege. And most people it is only by the grace of God that I am here today because um, very, some very unique things happened to me so that where I could be doing what I'm doing today. But most people like me, from my perspective, being the, the daughter of a single mom, uh, being an only child, being a person of color, we, especially being a mom with three young children, I mean, in any other circumstance, that opportunity should have passed me up. I should not be where I am today. Like that opportunity passed me up multiple times over and over again. And the older I get, the, the more that that opportunity is not going to come back to me. And yet God prepared a way and he made a way for me to be doing what I'm doing today. And I I know there's so many more people like me that have this amazing perspective on life. There are no black men LDS artists like we have Melissa and we, we love Melissa but like Melissa can't carry everything on her shoulders and do everything like we need multiple black artists from multiple black experiences because black people are not a monolith I really want more diversity in the church but I want also diverse artists and I think a lot of things that are set up for artists they're like they're just they're just leaning back and they're like sure if a artist of color shows up we'll you know we'll include them well, they're not going to just show up. Once again, art is a privilege to bridge that, that privilege, that, that racial, social, economical gap. There has to be some sort of bridge or framework to help the artists get to one side. And I am, luckily I had that. Um, it was really random the way I had it. Like, it's not my, my process is not going to work for everybody. Um, I wish there was a better way to bridge that gap. And there is only one grant that I know of. Exponent started a, a LDS uh, women of color uh, grant, artist grant. Um, and that's the only one I know of of its kind. And then there's lots of young mothers who, I, I don't know how they're going to get their shot. I think there is an, a mother artist, LDS mother artist grant that I applied to five times and didn't get it. Um, but I, we can't just... We can't just lean back and think that these diverse artists are just going to magically show up. We need to go find them and help them.
2: You know, that brings up another question for me as talking, you mentioned the sort of privilege of certain uh, aspects of fine art. But then that, for me, there arises a larger question of what counts as art? Does the art that that is already being done by these communities get seen as art by those with institutional power? Like what would they hang up on the wall of a chapel? Like, and why is that a gatekeeper?
1: I love that you brought that up. It's, it's also goes back to like Eurocentric beauty standards on uh, what what is considered fine art. And one of the things that I am so proud of, of my family history and for a lot of people of color because of colonialism, and because of racism and oppression, they didn't have access to the finest of materials. And so a lot of today, art of color from indigenous groups, and I know different, different parts of the African diaspora, are the art is either made out of elements from the earth, it's just made out of grasses, or, you know, in Chile, the the indigenous people they would make these beautiful butterflies out of horsehair you'll have to go look at them they're incredible you know in mexico they take garbage or sometimes trash and turn it into art and with the internet you get access to all these artists that you maybe never would have seen before and just all these international artists who who are still suffering under colonialism and white supremacy and and they they're artists they want to make art and so they use the elements around them whether it's the earth or whether it's stuff people threw out and they make these incredibly beautiful complex emotional uh pieces of art and and to not count that to not count uh especially within ldr lds artists that are doing this globally to not count that as fine enough or good enough i think that's once again like family history we need to break the Eurocentric standards of what qualifies as family history, of what qualifies as art, is what what qualifies as a follower of Christ. We need to break break those. I'm perfectly aware that I am not the best artist. I'm not the most trained artist. I, I, I still don't understand a lot about art theory and stuff. But one of the re- reasons I am where I am is because I have a wonderful mentor, uh, Kirk Richards, who... He believed me when I said I'm capable of doing something. He believed me and he shared as much he has continued to share as much privilege that he has as a white male. He continues to share that with me and a lot of other artists of color and I'm just very grateful to him but I I, I know I'm not the best artist. What I hope people would take from my art is not the fineness of it or even the uniqueness of it because because I am inspired by a lot of um, other artists, but they would take from it that, that it's a different perspective. What I'm, what I'm talking about in the art is, is a different perspective that you maybe as a white person have never seen and to realize there is a whole other world out there that you are living parallel with, but you don't even know about. And there's a way that people feel about things and think about things that are completely different than you. And then I also, for people of color, which this is the highlight of my life when I've shown at galleries or even online, when people see my art for the first time and they say, I see myself in that. I see my family. I see my abuela. I see my history in the art I feel seen through my art. And so that, that, that's a lot. I, I really did have my start t- teaching myself in my basement off of YouTube. <laughs> like I, I, I don't wanna feel ashamed of that. That is, that is my authenticity, but I, 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 do, I do offer another perspective. And I think that that is something that the, the voice and the experience and the perspective of people of color cannot be replaced by a white artist's use of black and brown paint.
0: Mm. a whole word. Yes.
2: And for me that resonates a lot with the Joseph Smith story because he wasn't trained, he wasn't learned, he didn't go to, to divinity school and yet he there was a power that he had that no one else of that generation could access through their training. And that that's where all people on the margins who don't have access to the power structures or the training or all of the inner privileges that the system itself uses to keep out others, there's a way around. And I think that's what you're speaking to. And that really resonates with me.
1: And I think that's important to keep in mind as we continue to discover and nurture and pull along other artists of color within the church, because they exist. They're, they're young kids. They're out there, you know, I think also within communities of color, especially immigrant communities, parents, no matter how talented their kid is at art, they're not going to be encouraging their kid to become an artist. They're like, you need to, you need to get an education. You need to help, you know, support your family. And, and there's this misconception that, you know, you, you won't do well in art and maybe you won't like it, it, it is, it is not for sure, but even as being like a, I my friend Ty- Tyrone Whitehorse he he has a job he helps support his family he's been and and yet he's this on the side he does this amazing indigenous art from an indigenous perspective and I'm like we know how to do both like we you can you can be the doctor or the lawyer and support your family but then also have extra help within even the LDS community of like also nurturing your art because more than than your style or the refinement and what you're doing or even the materials that you use it's your perspective your unique testimony your insight on this is is so valuable that no matter what way you want to say it to us using no matter what material you want to say it to us like we want to listen and we want we want to see your world your perspective and broaden our own you know what i mean
0: thank you for sharing that. And uh, I don't know, just for the record, the primary appeal of your art, I feel like, is that this intent of sharing another perspective really comes through. And I'm just glad that you brought out how necessary it is to bring that out in other people as well. And, you know, you already talked about the systems that are in place that don't really uh, make that a reality, but uh, that is probably... One more thing we can do in our positions of privilege is, uh, you know, direct resources and direct attention to making sure that uh, you know people with talent are able to come up. Somebody was, oh gosh, who was it? Was it Michelle Obama? I think in a recent interview, so she said something along the lines of, "There are millions of Amanda Gormans that are out there, and the reason we don't know about them is because there are systems in place." That do not allow Amanda Gormans to shine. I got. I was very fortunate in that people used their position of privilege to see something in me that allowed me to succeed academically when I was in middle school, high school, whatever else. But like so many other kids that look like me, particularly you know young black boys, their rowdiness or their misbehavior or their restlessness got perceived as you know a problem in a way that it might not have gotten perceived if they were white and so they do not exist in spaces that I'm able to exist in because of these systems that are in place and I really just hope we are able to put ourselves in a position to recognize the Amanda Gormans to recognize the Michelle Franzoni Thorleys and you know all these other folks out here cause we need it we desperately need it um Anyway, with the time that's remaining, Michelle, is there anything else you want, uh, anything else that you want out there?
1: I guess the only thing I didn't really talk about was just my connection to feminism and just I I heard the word ancestresses uh, a couple years ago. And I don't know why that sunk deep down into my soul. And within family history, there's not a lot about the women in history Uh, usually that they were a mother they had 20 kids and then they died (laughs) that's the extent of how how important they were as individuals and i through my art i've done a lot to reclaim my ancestresses to give them faces to give them stories to give them life and some of that comes from my imagination but a lot of it comes from a lot of hard work of finding out what society was like when they were alive and what it was like in their in their puebla you know in mexico city at that time and Um, I'm fortunate that my family lived a couple blocks away from Frida Kahlo. Um, and so a lot of like her life and what was happening around her, you know, I've kind of been able to piece together about maybe that's what my ancestresses were either seeing or thinking or, you know, Frida Kahlo's an individual. So obviously they might, they might've hated her. I don't know, but, um, uh, just to kind of explore your relationship with your female ancestors. Because because and I think that's really fascinating to do it because you can't go the traditional way of the records and stuff. You have to get creative. If you want to bring your female ancestors back to life, if you want to flesh them out and 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 look into their faces, you have to get creative and you have to know about history. And I, it's it's just so exciting. And I encourage anybody um, to do that, because I, I think you talked about in your episode of Heaven, of. With Heavenly Mother, how even with with men, I think it's so important to know about how your female ancestors were out there um, surviving, overcoming horrible things that happened to them, and that they continue to press forward. and um, And it's the reason we're all here today. So, um, and family history is anti racism work because I, I really gained my racial literacy and my vocabulary. I put words to experiences that I've had my whole life and my ancestors have had my whole life. Um, I was able to put a name to what was happening to them and to me uh, because of anti-racism work and understand things on a very personal level. And so I just think, don't put family history into a box, like break up that box, throw it away and just let it let it sparkle and shine and, and look, get creative on how to, how to turn hearts, um, to the people that came before you. So I think that's it.
0: <laughs> awesome. Uh, before we wrap up here, would you mind sharing with people uh, where they can find you and your work?
1: Yeah. Uh, floor familiar, uh, on Instagram, you can purchase my work. I have a website florafamiliar.com and um yeah
0: okay she has a patreon too guys and uh (laughs) so you know we'll put a link to that in the show notes so y'all can just you know hop on that because you know support art and all that other stuff that's important um and we're all we're all just we're all just creators out here guys and uh, this stuff we do is uh you know it's a big part of us and this is we spend a significant amount of our time doing this work. So yeah, definitely support that Patreon again, link in the show notes. We'll put that in our link tree as well. Michelle, thank you again so much for joining us today. This has been a real treat and we are just so happy that we've been able to finally like make this happen. Um, it's always great to, you know, get a taste for other people's ministries and how they are bringing forth the work of Zion in the unique ways they are qualified to do it. So thank you for sharing your time and your talents with us today.
1: Oh, I know people say this all the time, but I just want you to know how, how much I mean it, how honored I was when you reached out and asked me to be here because I, I have a lot of respect for both of you and, um, and I really, what you're doing is healing a
0: lot of hearts. Same reason you're doing it. We, we got to. (laughs) I'm just, I'm doing it for fun.
1: fun. I want to be running through the wildflowers.
0: Yeah. All right. Anyway, you enjoy the rest of your day, and uh, thanks again. Okay. Bye.